and children through fifth grade, you're invited to attend Children's Church. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Grateful to worship with you today. And uh, those of you that are new with us, my name's Cody. I'm the senior pastor. Thank you for giving us your Sunday morning. And I hope you walk out of here this morning uh, of all the things you could say about your time here. I, I hope the, the headline for you is, uh, I met with Jesus this morning in his church. Grateful to worship with you today. Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Joshua, chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And if you're new to the Bible, you'll find the passage we're going to study, uh, it starts on page 186 in that pew Bible. And uh, as always, I want to encourage you to have a copy of the Bible open uh, during our study this morning. Take a few notes and uh, you'll be in good shape there. So Joshua chapter 5 verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to spend our time today. Now, last week was a big week for us. We crossed the Jordan River with Israel. Do you remember that? Do you remember whenever the priests took the Ark of the Covenant that symbolizes the very presence of God with His people? They stepped into the water of the raging Jordan River at flood stage, and the water just piled up in a wall. In fact, it was a wall that stretched uh, north up the Jordan River for about 18 miles. And God's people, Israel, crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. When they came out, they came out onto Canaan soil, a new zip code for Israel as they stepped foot into the promised land for the very first time. And this is it. We're in the promised land. Welcome to the promised land. Now, what are you going to do now that you've gone from wilderness to promised land by God's miracle and leading. What are you going to do now? If you'd asked that question of one of the Israelites on this day, I think they would have answered, we're going to war. We're ready to fight. It's battle time. Uh, they knew that they were stepping into a land that was occupied and wasn't going to just be handed over to them easily or willingly. And they'd also heard reports that the kings of these various lands had heard about what God was doing for his people and their hearts were melting within them. They were terrified of the God of Israel. And not only that, do you remember who led Israel across the Jordan? You would say God and that's correct, but in the story itself, who is it that goes at the front of the line? It's soldiers from these two and a half tribes in battle formation. They lead the way across the Jordan River. It's soldiers that step foot onto the promised land first. They are in war formation and ready to go to battle. And for sure there's a battle on the horizon. Jericho is just right over the hill in the distance. Uh, it's, there's a war waiting for them. But before they go to war, God stops them. And he makes them worship. Now you've just gone through the water. You've got war on the horizon. But before we do anything else, we're going to worship right here. And why is that? Well, because God's people are in the promised land to enjoy the promised land itself. A place where they are to flourish. A place where they're to have rich relationship with God. And so before they go in and take possession, before they go and begin to fight... God makes his people pause so that they remember who he is 
and what it means for them to belong to Him. The first thing God has His people do in the promised land is worship. And that's what Joshua 5, 1 to 12 teaches us this morning. They have to learn the lesson of what it means to be God's promised land people even before they have full possession of the promised land. They're going to own this property eventually, but now they're going to practice as if it's already theirs in this moment. They're going to live like they're in the promised land. And I wonder if you've ever had this experience where you lived someplace away from home and you had to hold on to your home identity even in this strange land. Uh, in college uh, in Oklahoma where I grew up, I had a roommate who was from Concord, Massachusetts. His name's Mark. Today we're still dear friends. We talk all the time. And there were not a lot of people uh, who were moving from Massachusetts to Oklahoma to go to college, certainly not the college that I attended. He was one of the only New Englanders there, and he was my roommate. And Mark worked hard to hold on to his Massachusetts identity. He was provincial even in Oklahoma. He wanted people to know he was proud of where he was from. And this really came through one night. We're having a conversation in our apartment with some friends about favorite foods. And Mark said, man, one of my favorite all-time foods is a fluffernutter. And we said, what's a fluffernutter? And Mark lost his mind. What do you mean what's a fluffernutter? It's a fluffernutter. It's, it, it's, it's a sandwich. It's made with fluff and peanut butter. You never heard of a fluffernutter. And we said, what's fluff? And Mark said, what do you mean what's fluff? And, and in his rage, he just, he became more and more Bostonian. Every R removed from his vocabulary. But in, uh, in the mid-90s in Oklahoma, fluff was not a global conglomerate. They didn't have fluff on every shelf in every grocery store in America. And so he called his mom. And a couple weeks later, a box full of several tubs of fluff showed up and we, we tasted and saw that the fluff was good. We partook <laughs> in the fluffernutter. And so then we, we lived in Oklahoma as if we had gone to elementary school in Massachusetts. That, that was promised land living. We belonged to one country living in another. That's how Mark made it happen anyways. Well, that's what's happening here for Israel, essentially. They, they are uh, people who live in this country, but it's not theirs yet. That's kind of what it's like for you and I as followers of Jesus. We belong to Him as our King and His kingdom, but we're not there yet. And today, you and I have to live like promised land people. That's where we belong. That's where we're going. That's where we'll be forever with Him. But even here and now, there are requirements put on us for how we're going to live our lives as citizens of that distant country living in this foreign land. Joshua 5, 1 to 12 teaches us this, how to live as promised land people, even though we're not entirely there yet. My goal today is to teach you how to live as a resident of the kingdom of God in this foreign land. And Joshua 5, 1 to 12 gives us three descriptions of promised land living. So follow along with me as I lead Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 1. When all the Amorite kings across the Jordan to the west 
And all the Canaanite kings near the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the water of the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over. They lost heart and their courage failed because of the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelite men again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelite men at Gibeath Haraloth. This is the reason Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness along the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out were circumcised, none of the people born in the wilderness along the way were circumcised after they had come out of Egypt. For the Israelites wandered in the wilderness 40 years until all the nation's men of war who came out of Egypt had died off because they did not obey the Lord. So the Lord vowed never to let them see the land he had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. He raised up their sons in their place. It was these Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised since they had not been circumcised along the way. After the entire nation had been circumcised, they stayed where they were in the camp until they recovered. The Lord then said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. Therefore, that place is still called Gilgal today. While the Israelites camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. The day after Passover, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased. Since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. If you were reading through your Bible, you would not hit the pause button on this passage, and that would be a huge mistake. You would be ramped up about the parting of the Jordan River. You would be ramped up about the walls of Jericho about to come a-tumbling down. You would think of Joshua 5, 1 to 12 as just mere filler, but in between the water and the warfare is this moment of worship that you have to be captured by. And that God wants to teach us in this moment what it's like to live as promised land people. And so in this passage that we might otherwise fly over, uh, I want to show you these three descriptions of promised land living. First of all, promised land living looks like this. It's a life committed to God. It's a life of total, full person, inside and out commitment to God. Now... Uh, the fulfillment of God's covenant with his people is renewed. His covenant with his people is renewed by the reinstitution of the covenant mark of circumcision. It's described really in the bulk of the passage in verses 2 to 9 in particular. And so in verse 2, we have God's command to Joshua to circumcise the men of Israel. And the language there might be a little confusing if you don't read it carefully. In verse 2, God said to Joshua, circumcise the Israelite men again. And rather than the word again, your Bible might say a second time. What does it mean by that, a second time or again? Well, verses 4 to 7 explain what God means by the again or the second time. It explains that while Israel has been wandering in the wilderness those 40 years after leaving Egypt that this generation of men had not been circumcised as the previous generation had been. And why is it that the practice ceased for those 40 years after leaving Egypt? We don't really know 
The Bible doesn't give us an exact explanation. There's plenty of guesswork as to why it was perhaps this way. We're only told that God wants Joshua to reinstate the practice now. And what's the meaning of the practice? Why is it so important? Because if, look, if you were a war strategizer, this is not going to be part of your plan. Cross the river, physically weaken our soldiers, and then we're going to march on Jericho. That's not part of the plan. You want your soldiers to be at peak physical condition. But this is really important to God. It's tremendously important for His people And so what's the meaning of this covenant mark? Well, the covenant mark teaches us about commitment. It teaches us about the nature of our commitment to God. And so it's a sign or a symbol of commitment in three different ways. The first of all, it's a sign of the permanency, a symbol of the permanency of our commitment to God. The covenant mark itself is a permanent mark. And once it's in place, it's a reminder to the recipient uh, of the enduring and irrevocable nature of our covenant with God. It's a symbol of the permanence of our covenant with Him. Not only that, it's also a symbol of the exclusiveness of our commitment to the Lord. God's final words to Abraham when he institutes this. Genesis chapter 17, God tells Abraham, uh, circumcise all the men with you. This is a mark that's to continue. But at the end of those instructions, God said this to Abraham in Genesis 17, 14. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh, this man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here in circumcision, we have an early warning that there is no way but God's way. Idolatry is a persistent threat to God's people. It's an ever-present temptation that God strives to protect His people from. The covenant mark is a symbol of the exclusive nature of our commitment to God. It's also a symbol of, of our total commitment to God. Early on, the mark came to symbolize the spiritual commitment of one's life to God. So it was an external sign of an internal commitment. But it's not enough for God's people to just bear the mark. It has to reflect a heart that belongs to the Lord as well. And so Moses talked about this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moses said, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love Him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. So circumcision was more than just an external ritual. It was the outward sign of a total life commitment to God. Those who had the outward mark but lacked the submissive heart, they met with the judgment of God. That's what's explained to Joshua here in chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Though all the people who came out of Egypt were circumcised, Those Israelites disobeyed God. They did not take possession of the promised land when they had the opportunity. And as such, they're left to wander in the wilderness, to die and to be buried in the wilderness. They had the covenant mark, but their hearts did not belong to the Lord. It's not enough to cut your flesh if your heart is still full of sinful rot and disobedience. And so circumcision was a reminder of the need for a total commitment to God. You can have all the marks of the people of God, 
but lack the response of the people of God. You can receive the sacrament and yet not have any faith. That's a problem. So Israel had to learn that if God has your religious rituals, but he doesn't have your heart, then you're a spiritual disaster. We need to learn that lesson as well. So when we see the covenant symbol reinstated here in Joshua 5, it's a renewal of commitment, a commitment that is permanent, exclusive, and total. But that commitment is not just one-sided. It doesn't just tell the story of what God's people are going to do in their relationship with Him, but rather it also explains God's commitment to His covenant with His people. God's already stated His commitment to His people over and over. The book of Joshua opens with God's words of commitment. I will be with you. I will not leave you or abandon you. And so God's commitment to His covenant is permanent. This means that God will fulfill His promises in His covenant with Israel. He will forever keep His promises to bless them or His promises to bring judgment should they break the covenant. His commitment to them is permanent. Permanent. And God's commitment to them is exclusive. He has chosen a people for himself. And in fact, he was committed to his people before they were committed to him. He acts for them without their prompting or begging. He's committed to his people. God's also committed totally, completely. He will accomplish all that redemption requires for his people. So the renewal of the covenant mark is a reminder that we belong to a God who is committed to us and that we are His people committed to Him permanently, totally, inside and out. You see, the Christian life is a life of commitment. It's not first and foremost a life of ease. There is blessing, there is rest, there is ease to be enjoyed, but the Christian life, the walk with Jesus, it's a walk of commitment so that even when life is not easy, our commitment persists. We walk with Him through everything. But not many people want to hear about commitment today. Not many churches want to talk about the commitment required from those who are going to walk with Jesus. There are some people who would approach God as if they are interviewing Him for a job. I have the need for a deity in my life, and so God, let, let me ask you some questions to see what kind of God you are, if you will fit the life that I want to live. So I wonder, will you serve me well? Will you do good to me no matter what? Will you keep me from bad things and only give me good things? Will you give me ease and contentment in this life? Hey, will you leave my finances alone Except for when I need more of them and then give me more finances whenever I need the thing or I want the thing. We want a God who does our bidding. We, so many people don't want to think about the commitment that's required to walk with Him. And that's a problem. You see, many Christians want the benefits of salvation without the commitment of following Jesus. But I want you to hear what Jesus said about what it's like to be his follower. Jesus said that if we're to follow him in Matthew 16, we must take up our cross and follow him. And Jesus said in Matthew 10 that if anyone loves his father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if your right hand causes you to sin, hack it off. If your eye causes you to sin, 
pluck it out. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. God's people are a people committed to Him inside and out. Every part of us exclusively, totally committed to Him. That's what it's like to be a promised land person. God doesn't serve us. We live to serve Him, to exalt Him. God's people have little attachment to this world, and our supreme attachment is to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard this quote before. I think it resonates perfectly with this lesson in Joshua 5 from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, theologian who was martyred during World War II, and he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's the commitment that God calls for, that we would leave this world and its garbage behind, and we would leave everything to follow Christ with every aspect of our being, so that in my work, I live as a promised land person. And in my leisure, I'm a promised land person committed to Christ. In my relationship with my neighbors, I'm a promised land person committed to Christ. In my marriage, in my singleness, in my parenting, in my relationship to my parents, in the way I manage my finances, in all these ways, my commitment to Christ permeates So that he is the Lord of everything I do and everything that I am. That's what the renewal of the covenant mark teaches us about commitment. It is a total commitment to Christ because he has been completely and totally committed to us. That's promised land living, a life of commitment. There's a second description of promised land living in this story. And it describes it this way. It tells us that promised land living is a life of freedom from sin. So in verse 10 have this quick little description of a monumental celebration. In Joshua 5.10, while the Israelites camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month. A couple of ceremonies happening here in Joshua 5. The first ceremony is the renewal of the covenant mark, but the worship wasn't done yet. The second worship ceremony involves the Passover feast. And it had been decades since Israel last celebrated the Passover. And why had they gone so long without the Passover? Well, there's perhaps multiple reasons that we could highlight, but one significant reason is that circumcision is required for Passover observance. And so now that the covenant mark has been renewed, Israel can once again celebrate their liberation in the Passover. The Passover was a monumental, is a monumental holiday. It commemorated God's liberation of his people from slavery in Egypt. Once per year, Israel observed the holiday with food that told the story of their liberation. And what was that liberation like? Well, that liberation was necessary because their bondage was too great for them. God had to act on behalf of his people. They could not free themselves. They couldn't free themselves from their masters in Egypt, and apart from God's intervention, they would have remained slaves. They were slaves for 400 years before God intervened. And so in the Exodus, God's people were saved, not by military might or political forces, but by the act of God himself. And so in the Passover, we learned that salvation is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We don't liberate ourselves from bondage. God does that. 
Their liberation was also costly. It's costly because it required a sacrifice. If you remember that story from the book of Exodus, a lamb was killed and its blood was wiped on the doorpost of their homes. And that blood was the mark that protected Israel from God's wrath on the night the angel of the Lord brought death through Egypt. You had to have that blood. You had to be covered by the blood of the lamb in order for that judgment to pass over you and for you to step in liberation out into freedom. Can you imagine if Israel crossed the Jordan River, stepped into the promised land, walked up to the front door of Jericho and said, Hello, we're here to be your slaves. Take us captive, please. We were liberated from Egypt, but now we're, we've come all this way again. We'll give you 400 years and more of bondage if that's what you would like. God freed us, but now we're returning to our slavery. It's a ridiculous thing to imagine or to consider. It wouldn't make any sense. And nor does it make sense for God's people to continue to live in bondage to the sin that he's freed us from. Promised land living is freedom from sin. And what does it mean to be free from sin? Well, it means that we're free from sin's penalty. Our position with God has changed from judgment because of our sin to blessing because our sin has been removed. It's penalty taken away from us. Since Jesus loved us through his death on the cross and since we've embraced him as our Savior through faith, a great exchange has taken place. All of our sin and its punishment, the penalty that it requires, is taken from us by Christ at the cross. And the exchange is that he takes our penalty, our death, and by faith we receive his righteousness, his perfect holiness, his everlasting life, his eternal reward. All of that comes to you by faith in Jesus Christ. So to be free from sin means that we're free from sin's penalty. The believer's righteousness is not the means of our salvation, but it's the result of our salvation because the penalty of our sin has been removed. But to be free from sin also means we're free from sin's power. Just as Israel was freed from the power of their enslavers, so we are free from the power of sin's bondage through faith in Christ. So that means you have the real ability here and now through the power of the Holy Spirit to combat sin in your life and be victorious. You are not a victim to the schemes of the enemy anymore. Satan wants to fracture your faith. His schemes and temptations are real. There is a spiritual battle going on that you have no real idea about in terms of its intensity and its volume. And the Lord your God has fought and continues to fight on your behalf. And it's not a fair fight. The battle is over. Christ died and rose from the dead. The victory is his forevermore. But brothers and sisters, you got to know you have freedom from sin because its power over you has been broken through your faith in Christ. And so you battle with real sin. You've got temptation, habitual sin that you battle with day in and day out. And it's a losing battle and then you win a skirmish and you lose again. Look, you can have real victory over your sin. The power of your sin is broken through Jesus Christ. And so here in this Passover celebration, 
we get this reminder that promised land living means I'm not succumbing to the power of sin and temptation anymore. But rather, I'm walking in the power of Jesus Christ. We're free from sin's penalty. We're free from its power. And then one day when we are with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, in that promised land, we will be free from sin's presence. No more. It's gone forever. Every manifestation of it, every temptation, every dark thought, every instance of sickness and death and decay, all of it removed and in its place everlasting light. In that place that doesn't need a sun because the light of the glory of God and the Lamb fill that place with light. No more death, darkness, sorrow, or grieving Everything perfect with him, free from sin's presence forever and alive to God in Jesus Christ. And not only do you experience this freedom individually, but the work of the church is to propagate this liberation to others. This story is not just about your individual liberation. It is about our collective work as liberators of people who are bound by sin. That's why we're here this morning, because we are a people on a mission to set free those who are enslaved by the enemy. We get to partner with Christ in his glorious work that he described in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. We are free people striving to liberate others through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what promised land living looks like here and now. While we wait on that forever day, here and now, we are a people who live free from sin. So promised land living is a life of commitment. It's a life free from sin. And finally, it's a life of ordinary glory. In verses 11 and 12, promised land living, this here and now faith, is a life of ordinary glory. Verses 11 and 12 are an absolute treasure. They are the highlight of the passage for me. We're told that the day after Passover, the people ate unleavened bread and roasted grain. Look at 11 and 12 with me. It's worth rereading. The day after Passover, they ate unleavened bread and roasted grain from the produce of the land. And the day after they ate from the produce of the land, the manna ceased since there was no more manna for the Israelites, they ate from the crops of the land of Canaan that year. This is a big deal. A really, really big deal. They've celebrated the Passover. They eat unleavened bread and roasted grain. Uh, there is something in that description that could be telling us they're celebrating another religious observance called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We're not told that explicitly, but it's implied by some of the details that we have. And whether or not this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread doesn't really matter. The important part is the phrase that's repeated three times in these two verses. Did you pick up on it? It's the phrase, produce of the land. At the end of verse 11, middle of verse 12, and the end of verse 12, it's the crops of the land, but the same idea. They ate from the produce of the land. The manna stopped arriving and they ate from the land. What was manna? If you remember your Old Testament history, manna was the miracle food that God provided so that Israel wouldn't starve in their wilderness wandering. 
as they're wandering this nomadic life, they're, they're not planting crops and tending to fields. So God, every day, provided this manna from heaven. They would go out, collect it. They would eat their fill. The next day, they would go out and collect it again. Day after day, God met his people's need in this miraculous way. But then they ate from the produce of the ground, and the manna stopped. Why? Was it punishment? Is God punishing Israel for sin? And that's why, no more manna for you. I'm keeping it for myself, and you can, you can forage for mushrooms. Or Is that what he's doing? That's, that's not the case at all. This is absolutely glorious because the intention all along for being liberated from Egypt and set towards the promised land is that they would eat and flourish in this land flowing with milk and honey. To eat from the produce of the land is an absolute miracle in and of itself, though it is incredibly ordinary. They're just eating from the produce of the land, but it's promised land food. I mean, in my head, I imagine a scene sort of like this. One Israelite in the plains of Gilgal says to the other, hey, where'd you get that fruit? And he says, oh, you mean this fruit? I got it from the promised land. Where'd you get that grain? Oh, you mean this grain? I got it from the promised land. This is promised land grain. They are eating from the produce of the promised land. They hadn't eaten it before, but now God has made a way for them, and they're going to eat their fill. There's no more need for the miracle manna because now they've got the promised land feeding them for the rest of their days. Whether they eat manna from heaven or grain from the ground, it's all from God. And so promised land living means experiencing the mighty provisions of God in the ordinary stuff of life. God didn't part the waters for Israel every day. Life with God is not everyday monumental miracles, but rather it is beautiful, ordinary, commonplace encounters where God displays his omnipotence and his love and his compassion and his care. Look, Israel's regular way of encountering God's care would be through common meals, drinking water, waking up in the promised land, just the normal stuff of life. And so it is for us. Like so many Christians are looking for God to part the waters every day, but they're missing him at their dinner tables. God is not any less majestic just because the majority of his blessings come in the ordinary things of life. That's the good stuff. I read this story a while back uh, about a man named Dr. John Witherspoon. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And he was president of what was then called the College of New Jersey. And he lived a few miles from the office. Every day he got to the office by horse and buggy. And one particular day he was sitting in his office and a neighbor came running in and said, uh, Dr. Witherspoon, you have to give thanks to God with me for his extraordinary provision in saving my life. I was driving down Rocky Hill. The horse spooked and ran away and the buggy was smashed on the rocks, but I escaped unharmed. And Witherspoon reportedly replied, I can tell you of a far more remarkable providence than that. I've driven that road hundreds of times and my horse never ran away. My buggy was never smashed and I've never been hurt. We, we have to beware of thinking that God is only in the earthquake, the wind, and the fire. Most of God's gifts to his people are not glittery and gaudy, but they come in simple brown paper. It's 
quiet provisions of safety on the highway. Did you get here safely this morning? Maybe no flat tire, no major accident. Is that not the provision of God for you? Not the MBTA. It's the provision of God that gets you here. Safety on the highway, health of our family, picking up a paycheck, supper with people we love, time with friends. We enjoy the dearest communion with God in the ordinary provisions of life. That's why promised land living is a life of ordinary glory. What does it look like to live in the promised land? That's what Joshua 5 has taught us this morning. It's a life of commitment. It's a life free from sin. It's a life of ordinary glory. This story of Israel camping in Gilgal, it, it leads us to look to Israel's past and also to a future that awaits. So in terms of the past, this story takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Israel's first nights in Canaan here in Joshua 5 are in ways a recreation of the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, in that paradise, Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. They were perfectly righteous before Him, and they ate of the produce of the land. And that perfect scene is recreated in part in what I would call the Garden of Gilgal. But this story also takes us to a future all the way to Christ. And when we look at Christ through the lens of Joshua chapter 5, there are three foreshadowings of Jesus in the passage we just studied this morning. The first foreshadow of Christ is in the covenant mark of circumcision. And here we see Jesus who was cut off from the Father at Calvary because he was the sin bearer. At the cross, he removed our shame. The second foreshadowing of Christ is in the Passover because Jesus is our Passover lamb. John the Baptist declared in John chapter 1, you declared this morning at the beginning of this worship service, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus didn't come to bring an offering. He is the offering. And the third foreshadowing of Christ is in the meal that they ate. In John 6, 48 to 51, Jesus said this. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So what is the secret to promised land living? I'll tell you. Here's what Joshua chapter 5 teaches us. The secret to promised land living is nearness to Christ. When we, when we are near to Jesus, we are living in the promised land. One day we will all gather people of every tribe, tongue, and nation around that throne and we'll, we will see the lamb who was slaughtered, who looks like a lion, and we will rejoice with all the hosts of heaven. And so here and now, in our nearness to Christ, we are living in the promised land. From the garden to Gilgal to Golgotha to glory, it's all about Jesus. Joshua 5 takes us to the feet of Christ. And Christian, you may have come in here today with warfare on your mind or embroiled in some sort of spiritual battle or there's some battle on the horizon and maybe God is stopping you here for a season of worship before you enter the fray so that you would dwell in this promised land place with Jesus. 
that you would put the battle out of mind and for now you would look to Christ who has given everything for you. You would embrace him anew. You would rest in him. You would worship him and exalt him. And you would let him feed you, care for you, nourish you spiritually and in every other way. Today, this passage draws you to a deep and true communion with Christ. And if you're not a Christian and you're considering the claims of the Bible, well, then you need to know that your entrance to the promised land is through faith in Jesus. And he holds for you every spiritual blessing. He'll remove your shame. He gives you a place to belong. He ends your battles. He fills you with good things. He frees you from the power of sin. All this and more is yours. When you turn from your wanderings and you turn to Jesus by faith, he invites you today to enter the promised land he has for you by your faith in him. It's going to take real commitment. You're going to have to leave some things behind. You're not going to be the same person with Christ that you were without Christ. You're you're making him the Lord of your life. Everything is his. You've been living for yourself in whatever way that looks. But when Christ comes, he bids you come and die. And he calls you to follow him with everything. And you will find that when you leave it all behind for the sake of Christ, you have left nothing, but you have gained everything. Everything else you thought was worth living for, refuse. But Christ and Christ alone has life for you. And he calls you today to follow him. Here on the plains of Gilgal, Christ invites us. So let Joshua 5 bring you to the feet of Jesus who is the Lamb of God, who is our victorious King, who is the giver of daily bread. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for meeting us in this passage and for this uh, description of Christ in a place we might not have expected to meet him. But in all the activities of Joshua 5, we see our Savior who came and laid down his life and rose from the dead and is coming again. And so, Father, I pray that the result of our time this morning would be that we love Jesus deeper and more because of Joshua 5. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here. Lord, I ask for your strength to them. I know that we come in limping today. Uh, It has been a hard week for many in our congregation for numerous reasons. And it's in these hardships, Lord, that you meet us. So, God, I pray that you would strengthen my brothers and sisters who come in today with weak knees. But, Lord, uh, seeing their Savior, knowing that he's the lamb who laid down his life for them, he's their victorious king, Lord, give them new strength, even if it's just for this day, so that tomorrow they would wake up and seek you again. Christ, be our treasure. Give us hearts that cherish you above every enticement of this world. And I pray that you would bring salvation to the one this morning who would trust in you. Father, may they hear your voice, be awakened to faith, so that today they would know your salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.